Welcome to the Masters in Psychology podcast, where psychology students can learn from psychologists, educators, and practitioners to better understand what they do, how they got there, and hear the advice they have for those interested in getting a graduate degree in psychology. I'm your host, Brad Schumacher, and today we welcome Dr. Jenny Long to the show. Dr. Long is a licensed psychologist and owner of Midwest Counseling and Assessment located in West Plains, Missouri. She has been in the field for over 16 years, and her practice uses multiple approaches to therapy, including CBT, EMDR, and prolonged exposure therapy, exposure therapy, along with a variety of assessments and evaluations. Today, we will learn more about her academic journey, why she chose to receive a PsyD instead of a PhD, and hear her advice for those who are interested in the field of psychology. Dr. Long, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. It's uh, good to be here from big city of West Plains, South Central Missouri. It is. And, you know, what's nice about this interview is we're in the same time zone. A lot of times I talk to people and I have to account yes. for one, two or three different, you know, uh, time zones. So it's kind of nice to uh, talk in the same time zone. Good morning and welcome yeah. to the show. I'm glad that you were able to join us. Thank you. So to start us off, tell us just a little bit more about yourself, a little bit more than just my intro. Okay. So, uh, I, well, I think I mentioned this earlier when we were just talking before the show. I, I am a reformed perfectionist. Um, I, you know, don't, I no longer have the same need all the time to have things perfect, uh, because there's no such, as my uh, mentor when I was doing my dissertation said, Jenny, there's no such thing as a perfect dissertation, just a done one. So get over it, you know, and get it done. So, um, I'm an introvert that I like people. Uh, I just don't need people all the time, you know, so um, and uh, I have uh, fur children that I've had since before my daughter, uh, but I have an eight year old girl and uh, I'm married to a band director, which oh, wow. is uh, always interesting through the year. So, yes. Um, and I've been, you know, I've been practice for a while and, and had Midwest counseling uh, for the last four years, but. Uh, I've just enjoyed a lot of different experiences that kind of I know have gotten me to this point in my life and, and doing what I do now. Well, good. Well, thank you. Uh, as you have uh, seen on other <coughs> podcasts, our goal is to kind of go through your academic journey, why you chose certain schools, why you selected certain mm -hmm. degrees. <coughs> and then in your case, uh, we'd like to talk a little bit more about why you went the PsyD route versus the PhD route. But first sure. of all, let's kind of start with your undergraduate experiences. Where did you attend? And at what point did you know that you wanted to get into psychology or start a career in psychology? Well, I went to Missouri State University, uh, which at the time was actually Southwest Missouri State um, before they changed the name. And uh, I actually was a political science uh, with public administration entrance uh, or uh, in, uh, focus in that area, um, criminal justice minor. Uh, and then I added psychology just because I liked the classes. I mean, it, it was just it was fascinating. And we like learning about ourselves and um, you know, every intro to psychology student is diagnosing themselves and their family. And, you know, but it was just, it was fascinating to me. Um, but it, interestingly enough, I did not change to be a psychology major uh, until kind of a fluke towards the end. I, I knew, I guess it was probably towards after my junior year. And I was like, 
I had all these classes, but political science, it was just, I, I didn't know what I was going to do with that necessarily kind of things had changed and I didn't, uh, wasn't going to go to law school. And, um, so I, I looked and I had enough credits for psychology to just basically add a few and switch to make it my major and poli sci as my, as my, you know, minor with criminal justice and, uh, and be able to graduate with just the exact number of credits needed and not having to take a bunch of extra classes. So I did not have the intention to go to grad school because she, you know, some of my professors would talk about grad school and I'm like, oh my gosh, why would I want to stay longer? But I like school. I mean, I'm a nerd. And so like that, I, I enjoy school. Um, so I didn't go right into my master's program from there. Okay. Well, that's a good lead into my next question before I'd ask yeah. that though. So when did you finally um, uh, graduate then? What year? So I, uh, I graduated in 2001. Okay. Um, and uh, I actually worked um, my first like, you know, real job out of college was at the Child Advocacy Center um, in Springfield. So we, we were part of helping with uh, basically facilitating investigations and support for families and uh, law enforcement agencies and things for when children um, may have been abused or um, experienced, you know. So in that setting of Child Advocacy Center. And uh, so I did that for a little less than a year. Um, but then in that time, I realized, you know, I really want to go back to school because I don't want to be held back from doing things that I, I want to do. And you really need I just needed the degree. And so because uh, I was thinking at that time that I probably would enjoy uh, doing more um like therapy work. And so that was just necessary for a master's degree, but I wasn't, I wasn't going to go for a doctorate either. You know, I was just getting a master's degree. One step at a time. It sounds like you were just going, right. well, I got through this. Let's do a little, you know, let's work right. here. And then about right. a year later, you're thinking, you know, I, I have this urge to go back. So now that you have this urge to go back, how did you decide where to go for your master's degree? And, and what school did you end up going to? Well, so interestingly enough, I in the, I actually first went to Fort Worth, Texas, because I was going to go to seminary to do the marriage and family program there. Um, but you know what I learned? I hate marriage and family counseling. <laughs> and so I was like, this is not me. And uh, I also realized, too, that in that setting, you would be able to possibly get a, a you know, a, a licensure as a master's level, but it was not, it, it would be a terminal degree. You could not go on and get a doctorate that would result in licensure, you know? So there's a lot of different, there are doctorate programs out there that may be Christian counseling or other things like that, but they don't mean that that person can then take the licensure exam. And, you know, that's, so that's always something people need to be aware of because you have to be a doctorate of psychology, whether that's PhD or PsyD. Um, so that's where I set my sights back on Evangel, um, which uh, is a small um, kind of fine arts. Uh, it's a Christian school, um, but for the master's program, you didn't have all the regulations that they typically had for undergrad. Um, and, uh, you know, what I, I think what I liked about that was what they offered. Um, and it was small, you know, much smaller than anything I'd been at, you know, larger at MSU and uh, which is much larger. So um, go ahead. Yeah. What I was going to say, I'm sorry for interrupting. There's a little leg obviously on, on zoom here, but um, 
one thing that I wanted to ask is, well, how did you know that you wanted to, at what point did you know that you wanted to continue on for your doctorate and, and receive your PsyD? And then we're going to lead up to that ultimate question of how did you decide on getting a PsyD versus a PhD? A loaded mm-hmm. question, probably two or three questions there, but kind of bring us through, okay, you, you have your master's. Is it is an MA or MS did you get? Uh, it was master's science in uh, counseling psychology. Yeah. Okay. And then uh, did you take another break after that or did you go right into uh, your doctor program? I did. I took a break for two months <laughs> <laughs> and then I started in July on my doctorate. Um, you know, I, so it was, it was interesting. And I, I guess I, I'll say this about Evangel. One of the things that was different, cause I, I have liked having different experiences at different schools, um, was that they had a spiritual in- integration aspect that was not geared about just, I mean, they're an assembly school. I'm not even of that faith. Um, but they were focused on helping you to do that with whatever the religion, um, just because that's an important part of people, you know? And, um, so that was something that I really took from there was being able. And so I, I will see a variety of clients. It doesn't matter what their religion or spiritual, you know, spirituality is. And so that was, really helpful. But then I also knew that I wanted to go a different direction as I looked at doctorate programs. Um, and uh, I think I started it w- at the point where I started thinking about my doctorate was when I finished my thesis work, because before that I was like, good Lord, I am not doing this again. <laughs> and so I was certainly not going to take on a dissertation. Um, but then I was like, no, I, my, the drive for me was I didn't want to be held back again, you know, by a degree. And, um, when you look at, you know, Missouri, it's licensed professional counselors in, um, and social workers are the master's level clinicians that we have. But, you know, the LPCs have not had the strongest lobby and you're going to, you're limited on the clientele that you can see. And I, I wanted to do a variety of things and I just didn't want to be held back by that. Um, and, uh, so that's where I really started looking, you know, in that last semester of the doctorate program to consider that. Okay. And so in, in your own words, when you look back, you know, for advice for students who are considering, Hey, should I go the PhD route or side E route? Any advice that you'd have for them on helping them decide which route to go? Yeah, um, you know, for for me, um, well, I'm very pragmatic, uh, and, and I, I like to, I'm just things that are logical and when they work out. And uh, one of the big factors for me um, was even just looking at schools that would take my master's degree into my doctorate program uh, because I didn't want to start all over again. And so I think I was able to transfer in like 36 to 40 hours of my master's program. Um, instead of starting at at ground zero. And that's when, so, you know, I was looking at like University of Missouri, uh, the counseling program uh, there for the doctorate is excellent. Um, And also with the School of Professional Psychology in Springfield, where I already was. Um, And that I started looking at those specifically because they were willing to take my master's work uh, instead of kind of going into an academic kind of setting. well, you know, the one thing that came to my mind while you were uh, answering that question is, you know, how, 
any other reasons why you would select a certain program or school? Number one, as you said, yeah. hey, can they accept any and all or a portion of your master's uh, mm -hmm. you know, degree hours? That's one thing. Any other things to consider when uh, looking at different programs or schools for your graduate work? Yes. Uh, two other big things, I think. Um, first off, uh, the, and this is not it's not always across the board. You really have to look at what each individual program offers. But when I selected my doctorate program, it, one of the big reasons was because they had multiple areas of specialization. Um, and so from, you could choose from neuropsychology, forensics, integrated healthcare. I mean, it was just a bigger, more bigger, a lot more opportunity for different facets for you to figure out where you wanted to specialize in. And the emphasis historically with PsyD programs over PH versus PhD programs is we still had to do a dissertation, but it is much more of a clinical focus than it is an academic one. And for me, you know, and my cousin actually is a psychologist in Colorado. He went to University of Denver and got his PsyD there. And so he had kind of explained that and I knew what he was doing. And I think that's probably what drew me more to that, you know, the PsyD program. Um, but that is, I knew I wasn't going to end up in an academic setting trying to teach and, you know, nothing wrong with this. But when you go to some of those schools, you're going to do more of your practicum experience, like in a college counseling center. And so, you know, some of um, they may be smaller settings for doing some of your practicum. And I liked with the school that I had looked at, um, you know, where I went, we had multiple different opportunities as far as different settings. I mean, from, you know, from working in the jail for the county to, you know, hospitals and uh, clinics, private practice. I mean, it just ran the gamut. Um, and so I liked being able to really build clinical skills when I was in my, my doctorate program. Okay. Very good answer. The other thing that I'd add, and I found through, um, a lot of different interviews is really deciding. You mentioned it. You knew that you didn't want to end up in the academic setting. Um, yeah. and so that's one thing to consider it. You know, a lot of times people think about, well, what do I want to do with this degree, whether it's a society or a PhD. And by yeah. that time, hopefully you know what you want to do with it because that helps direct yeah. you whether or not you go the PsyD or PhD route. I know another thing that right. people have told me, and I was the old school thinking, well, it's got to be PhD. No matter what you do, you got to right. go to PhD. And then the right. PsyD was this new thing. And, and at the very beginning, it was, oh my gosh, what is this? No, that's, you can't go that route. Is that even going to stick around? You know, is that really going right. to be applicable? Now it's gained a lot more um, uh, integrity, reputation, and it really mm -hmm. is, um, you know, I talked to three, four different people on both the PsyD and PhD route, and you still do the dissertation, but to your point, it's more clinical uh, mm -hmm. than it is on the other one. And then when you go into the academic world, depending on if you're a level one, two or three school, you're going to have to do some research. And yeah. if you don't, if you don't like doing research, then probably you don't want to go the PhD route and go the right. academic route. So uh, right. just my two cents after, you know, talking with people over the years. So um, no, I anything, think that's absolutely right. Yeah. Any Anything well, else that you'd like to add? 
Yeah, I think the other thing that's important for for people to consider as as they look at these is that, you know, I did not have the opportunity for grad assistantships, okay? It, and but most programs if you look at especially state schools, um which are good programs, um and they with that and even some just different universities like that with that are research more research oriented, they're going to have more graduate assistantship opportunities. And so if that's something that really appeals to you, um, then that could be an important factor as well. I did not have that. However, I did loan repayment through the National Health Service Corps. And so I my my student loans are paid in full because then I work in a rural area. Um, and I knew that was going to be a possibility for me to do for the area that I was at. So I was a little less worried about getting the graduate assistantships in my doctoral program. But for some people, that's a really important factor and and worth considering, you know, when you think about the cost of school, because it's not cheap, you know? No, I agree with you. I agree with you. A lot of people still pay on their um, graduate education for sure later on yeah. in life. So that's, uh, I, I'm glad yeah. to hear that you were able to do that. One other thing that came to mind when we were talking is, you mentioned that basically it was it was the variety of classes that kind of led mm -hmm. you to your doctoral program. Mm -hmm. I hear sometimes that people are are swayed to go to this program at this school because of the research that people are doing there. Some of the doctors are doing there, and so yeah. did anything else come into play in your decision in, in, to go to that particular school? Well, I liked that the many of the teachers that were 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 teaching or that were the professors um they were actually doing the work okay they were in real life settings and working as psychologists one of my favorite professors um worked for the you know a, a federal medical facility um but doing neuropsychology and he was fantastic and i learned so much from him because it was always about relating that to real life examples for us to understand and it was not just about book work, you had to understand that, but uh, understanding that in the context of practice. And so I have always been more interested in hearing from somebody that has been outside the classroom to experience some things, um, especially when we talk about clinical practice, because what you learn in grad school is very different from the world as a clinician. And uh, so I really, that was one of the things that uh, I, I really liked. And uh, one other thing was uh, they even offered, I took a business class, even in my mm -hmm. program. And, you know, most people to understand what we all talk about going out to hang out your own shingle, uh, which is not something we can all do, or we all want to do. Um, but I, you know, we did business plans, we learned those things. And I don't think that that's necessarily a part of a lot of graduate programs. Maybe it is now more. Uh, but I think that was rare at the time. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I've heard a lot of my guests say, yeah, you don't learn how to run a business. You don't, you know, if you don't mm -hmm. work with uh, any numbers, spreadsheets, uh, and all of a sudden mm -hmm. you're thrown into it, you you almost have to pay somebody else to do that instead. And we're going to get back to that a little later on. But okay, I know that you I, I see that you spent some time working at the Ozarks Medical Center, uh, first as a licensed professional counselor and then as a licensed clinical psychologist. So tell us how you found that job and why did you choose to work with them? Uh, well, it, it, it just uh, as things happen, it, it just kind of happened that way, uh, you know, in life. 
Um, my husband had a job in this area. Um, we, we distance dated and we, we were only, this is only a couple hours from where I grew up in Springfield. Um, but it was, that was the only place that there were psychologists like in this whole area. Right. <laughs> so I had started working on them to try to get an internship so I wouldn't have to go elsewhere. And I ended up doing inpatient for, uh, in, in, um, at a hospital for my internship, but I did develop, I worked with them to develop a residency basically, um, for me to work, to get my licensure. Um, mm -hmm. and it was honestly driven by the fact that they needed psychologists. They had psychologists at the time. And so it was a place where I could go and we wouldn't necessarily leave from my husband's job because he had a good setup with the school where he was at. And my job had more flexibility to go some, you know, to be here. So, okay. uh, well, that, good. That just kind of happened. And then I was able to actually, I worked because I'd already had my master's degree and worked as a master's level clinician through grad school. But I, with having the, uh, the degree, I was trying to finish my doctoral, uh, dissertation. So I, cause I was all but dissertation. Cause you, if you're picking up the theme, like how much I love research, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, and, uh, so I had to finish that before I could do my take my boards and all of that stuff. So that's what I spent a year doing working as an LPC and finishing that so I could get into my doctoral hours. Okay. Well, thank you for that background. And, and you mentioned the first thing um, on one of my podcasts and a lot of people that might be joining when you say all but dissertation, if you see somebody's Vita and it says ABD, <laughs> that's what it, that's what it stands for is all but uh -huh. dissertation. So uh, it just means that they passed the orals and the writtens and now they're just finishing their their dissertation. So I just wanted to let the audience know mm -hmm. what that meant. So um, one other thing that that came up during some conversations recently with other podcasters uh, and podcast interviews, because um, some of my guests have their own podcasts as well. And so it's always interesting to find out what they're what they're talking yeah. about with their topics. One thing that I've asked, I always thought that you needed to attend a school, a graduate school that was APA accredited. And um, some of my guests would come back and say, well, I, I, I agree if you're going this route, but I disagree mm -hmm. if you're going a different route. So tell me what your thoughts are on, hey, do I need to go to an APA accredited school or not? What are your thoughts on that? I err towards yes, because you don't so that you are not uh, again, you don't limit yourself perhaps later um, because there are now rules are always changing. And, and I don't know right now, there's probably because APIC is, is another accrediting body. Um, there's also because there's the difference between you have the APA school, but also a lot of people want their internship to be APA accredited. Mm -hmm. But it is, I mean, it, it's a fight to get enough of the internships. And so there's a lot of, there are plenty of good people uh, that, that are going to be great psychologists that will do non-APA um, sites for their internship because they just need to get through it. If you want to go work for the federal government, you, you need that now, unless that rule has changed. Um, but at the time, you know, so even 10, 11 years ago, even to get a job at a VA or somewhere else, you needed to have an APA internship site. So not just the school, but also the internship site. Um, so if you have an interest in that, like knowing where you want to work, and I think that's always hard because we don't know where we're going to end up. Um, but think about what you might want to do and you cover your basis to make sure it allows you to get there because otherwise you'd have to go back and honestly connect, like complete a second APA internship, you know, or second one that was APA, um, 
just for that job, you know, so know the rules, I guess, you know, where you want to go. Yeah. And the other thing that was brought up is it really depends not only what you see yourself doing with the degree uh, inside mm -hmm. or outside of academia or working for the government or a government agency. But the other thing that comes into play is certain states have different rules as well. And so yeah. every state has a different rule regarding that as well. So it's yeah, we're almost making it more complicated for our audience telling them, oh, you have to consider you have to consider this, this and this. Mm -hmm. Well, just have a good, you know, my advice is just have a good discussion with somebody who's in the field that you're working and yeah. ask them for their um, you know, suggestions and then talk to somebody who's in a different field. And whether it's inside or outside of academia, um, most people are going to be welcoming. I mean, you're welcoming and you're you're sharing your academic journey with us. So it's just pick up the phone and call them and, and try yeah. to get that information from them. So I appreciate you uh, sharing that. In well, 2000 I, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say the other thing I would say to students is that, look, things change all the time. And, um, you know, we just in the since COVID, we now can do telehealth through most insurances and Medicare and Medicaid. And um, so things change all the time. So, you know, if if you make a decision, don't don't also obsess that you've made the wrong one because things have a way of working out uh, kind of where you need for them to. So I, I think it's really easy to get hung up on some of those small decisions because we're like, oh, my gosh, so I have to I have to have my whole life mapped out. And uh, that's the way it feels sometimes. And I think, you know, for I just would say for students as they think about that just know that things are going to work out and you're not going to make the wrong decision. You're just going to have an experience and figure stuff out as you go because you don't have to get it all perfect the first time. Very good reminder and advice. I know that when I looked at your background and then leading up to going through your grad schools and then taking breaks in between, in 2017 of July, you began working at Midwest Counseling and Assessment as an owner and licensed psychology. So what led mm -hmm. to this change? And, and tell us a little bit more about how you became an owner. Give us more background on what led you to uh, MCA. Okay. Um, I, I like variety, um, but I also, I wanted freedom. I, I did not want to be held to a nine to five, eight to five job, um, working and doing whatever but what agency may have thought was the best thing um, at the time. And, uh, you know, because there's a place for that. But I also knew I had done that long enough. And I, I think the other big thing at that point was my daughter was going into preschool. And I just did not want the, the, the one thing in life you cannot take back is your time. Um, and I don't think also people look back when they're at the end of their life and say, man, I wish I would have worked more. Um, you, you have to find a way to, to prioritize the things that you value. And um, so for me, while in some ways I worked more um, until I kind of got into a rhythm, but I got to, I, I controlled it. So if I stayed up and I was working at 2 a.m., that was fine. It was still doing what I needed to do, but it was on my time schedule. And so I think that was one of the biggest things. And I liked the challenge and I wanted to do more than just psychology. I enjoyed doing the business side of things, uh, which was a big learning curve, but um, it, it also gave me some of the variety that I really like. Well, I like that you brought that up because, you know, one of my questions was, you know, you wear, wear multiple hats, you know, you are yeah. a psychologist, you are an owner, 
I'm not sure if you're involved in the PR or if you're involved in the books. Yeah. Um, you know, tell us a little bit more about some of the challenges that you have as both psychologist, owner, PR, wearing multiple hats. Well, I think, you know, as the owner, you you feel responsible too for when you have employees, uh, employees, and then I have some 1099 therapists that work with me too. Um, but, you know, you are responsible for making sure that that, that the clinics, you know, that we still run. And uh, so it's dependent upon the things that you're doing. And uh, you have to find a way to, to do those different things. And it's not, it's, it is helpful though, when you outsource, because, you know, know what your weaknesses are. I started out from the get go. Um, it's not that I'm bad with money, but I am certainly not an accountant. And, you know, so I, I had an accountant from the get go to make sure I did things right, because I didn't want to be hiring an attorney later to fix the mistakes with the IRS, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and look, you figure out what the return on your investment is, because nobody is going to pay me $160 an hour to do their website. So why would I do that for myself? Mm-hmm. <laughs> if, you know, if, if I wouldn't, if somebody else wouldn't hire me, I wouldn't hire me either for doing the website. So just doing some of those things are worth the investment because your time has a certain amount of value to it. And you have to figure out what it is gives you the most value for how you spend your time. Well, you mentioned one other thing, and I'm going to share the screen again. Um, getting to know us, of course, we, we have you there and then Elizabeth Turner um, and then Kurt Cook and Susan. Um, yeah. You mentioned you mentioned one thing um, that I didn't recognize. So uh, this is for my edification as well as our audience. You have some people working for you that are uh, a 1099 or what was that again? Yeah. So a 1099 just as an independent contractor. And those are actually the therapists um, that work with me. Um, so someone else. Uh, so, you know, like also I'll just take this opportunity to point out a website's always a work in progress and guess how long I've, you know, needed to put their bio stuff up, right. For (laughs) a while, but as a business owner, I'm seeing clients. And so you, you know, you weigh those things, but I promise you, I'm going to end up probably in the next two weeks now going on and fixing that because (laughs) I know if there's other traffic to it, you know, but, um, but the 1099, so just independent contractor, you really can't have that, and there's very specific standards for W-2 versus a 1099. I don't control the activities of the therapist. Um, they are, they are allowed to, they work here. I do get clientele. Um, but I don't control their hours. Uh, you know, the things like that. So it's not, um, it, it's a good situation for them and for me for right now. Although there's a lot of benefits and, and people kind of will, there's a big discussion in private practice of, you know, really moving towards a W-2 uh, employee model, um, which at some point I may do. Uh, but right now, what I have works for me. So, so you know, the natural follow-up question for me is if I was a 1099 independent contractor, does that mean that I lease space or lease office space from, on your facility? Or how does that work if they're working within your uh, business? Well, there, there are numerous setups um, that you can have sometimes it's a certain percentage of what they make. Now there's, there's also arguments about, about that. Some people, some, some will tell you, you shouldn't do that. Other people that that's fine. So you have to get into understanding the legalities of whatever setup you have. 
And, um, but it, it generally is, or they may just pay you rent um, or pay you more than just for the office space. Because, you know, I, I supply the, the coffee and the drinks and the office supplies and, you know, um, having an office manager to manage things and to bill people. So they're getting more than just the space, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so that's where you can do a variety of different setups um, if you have them play a flat rate. But sometimes too, when somebody's just also starting to build their practice, having them do a flat rate may not seem as reasonable. You may want to just do um, a, a buildup um, to be able to manage it for both people, you know? Right. So it really depends on what you want to set up and look at the mm -hmm. ramifications of, of each of those, not only on your time and your resources, but in terms of uh, tax, you know, and taxes yes. and how that's treated. So uh, I'm yes. looking at my other screen here and I'm, I'm looking at all the different services that you have. And some of them, um, you know, stand out. CBT has been around, you know, cognitive behavioral yeah. therapy has been around. That's almost a staple. You also offer uh, EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization, desensitization and reprocessing. And then I also mm -hmm. saw in some of your um, uh, areas for you, prolonged exposure therapy. So for our audience, kind of briefly describe EMDR. Okay. Um, EMDR is a fantastic, well-researched, effective treatment um, for uh, clients that Trauma is where it really developed of working with trauma victims um, and and survivors and and just helping people be able to process that. But there, I tell you what, there's not many clients that I could not use EMDR with. So, I mean, I have uh, treated people with uh, anxiety, depression, OCD, chronic pain, um, boundary issues. I mean, the, it runs a gamut and it's very, it, but it allows the brain to basically do its work on its own where it takes the inhibition out. So there is the right and left brain are communicating so quickly. So this is very rudimentary explanation. Um, but ultimately it's about rebuilding the neural networks in the brain. Uh, you're, you know, you're, you're taking down the old rusty bridge that could collapse at any point in time and you're building a better bridge um, that's efficient and safe. Um, and so that, and that's what EMDR really is geared towards um, and what it does. Um, versus, and I'll say on a painfulness scale, it, it can be painful for people in a moment, but they generally experience more relief in a much faster way. Uh, prolonged exposure therapy, it was actually a, a training I did um, and was doing it more frequently before I learned EMDR. And I did that with, uh, had learned that from the Center for Deployment. Um, and they, uh, w which has the military university, um, but it is more painful. <laughs> it is a lot more painful. And people really have to know what they're getting into at first, because basically it's, it's a method to desensitize them to the trauma by reliving it over and over and over and over again to the point where it does not have the same kind of physiological effects on them and the psychological effects uh, that it would have before. So you really have to provide an informed opportunity, like informed consent for a client. So they know what they're getting into because it is, uh, it's painful for people. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to share the screen again, um, you know, on one of your social media sites and your LinkedIn, 
Um, you are a proponent of EMDR, and it's obvious mm-hmm. because you have a lot of different uh, uh, posts on here on how is it applied? Are certain yeah. uh, people uh, a good candidate for using EMDR? So there's a lot of good resources on your LinkedIn with some good links to some professionals that have been uh, in that EMDR field for a long time. Um, yeah. What do, what do they actually look like? We're looking at this, and that's kind of nice uh, breakdown. One thing that we've done on our, our website, just one plug for us, is we have a careers page, and then we actually have uh, different sections on different approaches that you can take and applications. And so there are some good links here to, if you're really interested in EMDR therapy, uh, you can visit uh, uh, your uh, uh, LinkedIn and then our careers page as well. So it's interesting to hear how people are applying it and uh, how yeah. it's beneficial. And to your point, you're not the only one who's told me, you know, it's it's hard to find somebody where EMDR is not useful or, you know, they prefer right. another therapy. So. Um, you also offer a variety of assessments and, and other measurements. I mean, we've all, you know, if you're in, if you're in psychology, you'd know some of these basic ones, but tell us a little bit more of some of the ones that you typically use the most. And then some other ones that are outside the box that, uh, you have used in the past or, or plan on using in the future. Um, do you mean, and just not necessarily in particular tests, but just in terms of types of psychological evals? Yep. Yeah. Um, so uh, one that I got into because I worked in a hospital setting uh, was medical evals. Um, so basically, we call them medical readiness. Um, so for instance, spinal cord stimulators, lumbar fusions, um, bariatric surgery, um, and, uh, you know, even things like for transplant patients, I have done that before. And uh, those were things that I really... Uh, I really found that I enjoy because I always, I have worked also in medical settings uh, in other capacities besides as a psychologist. And I really enjoyed um, just the medical aspect of it. So um, working with the doctors is something that I've really enjoyed. And there, once you, I've done them for a long time, so I'm fairly efficient at it. And uh, I, I think that it's helpful in trying to be able to educate the client for them to also know what they're getting into so that they, that they're better prepared and just all the way around, you know? Um, and I think, uh, so I, I also do a lot of, uh, cognitive evals like for IQ and adaptive functioning. Um, and sometimes that is just for the purpose for somebody to maintain services. So, um, you know, if we have, um, intellectually, um, disabled adults, um, uh, they, they may have to, you know, have a frequent IQ test or adaptive functioning, things like that. Um, and then I do not do a full neuropsych battery, but oftentimes we'll do some cognitive testing just to kind of give even a baseline for um, how somebody's memory is doing if they have maybe undergone certain medical procedures um, or just have it a, a decline that, you know, a neurologist kind of wants to, to get an idea about. So they might refer for that. The other one that I think was interesting when I was uh, doing a lot of research on uh, MCA was you offer pre-adoption evaluation. So mm-hmm. tell me what's kind of involved in that and what's the goal behind that evaluation? Well, um, for most of the pre-adoption evaluations, um, a lot of times it's for international adoptions mm-hmm. and each country usually has their own set of requirements. Um, so I've primarily done them for several Asian countries. 
Um, and it, it really is about what they're, what they're looking for is to get an idea of how much a person's uh, mental health is impacting their functioning, basically, and how are they as a couple to be able to take on the challenges because there, there are a lot of challenges in taking on an adoption and in a, a rewarding one, um, but to help them kind of be prepared for that. But they, you know, the countries have some certain specifications that they want to make sure um, that the parents meet before they're authorized. Um, so I kind of got into that simply because there was a need in our area. We have, uh, there's several people that have done uh, a lot of uh, multiple international adoptions. And um, so I just found that it was a need. It was something that's straightforward. And you're also, you're not really dealing with pathology. You know, it's just, it's, uh, it's normal people stuff. And uh, so I, uh, and it's a part of a really positive process. And so it's just something that I've enjoyed doing. Well, it sounds like it. I mean, it, what's nice about your practice is you have a wide variety of services. And, you know, one thing that I'd ask you is, how is your service different than other services in your area? We've kind of touched on a, a few of them, but anything else come to mind in terms yeah. of how is MCA different? Well, I think, um, you know, honestly, the most obvious one is it, I'm the only psychologist in, in my area, um, in my town. Um, there are some that come into town to do disability evals, which I don't do. Uh, I also do, <laughs> I don't do court evals like for custody disputes um, because I have to live here. Right. So I it's and it's not a big enough place to do that. Um, but as far as, you know, MCA, we are not just another behavioral health clinic. It's it is not just a community mental health center. Um, I, I know a lot of people in the professional realm that they are not going to go and sit in a community mental health center um, where they feel like they're on display. Um, and people look at them as not having just a need for growth. They are looked at as suddenly having a mental health issue. I mean, you know, that they have a, they have a mental illness. And, uh, so for us, that's why beyond HIPAA, I mean, anonymity is important. I mean, my, my hope is that we normalize mental health, but, you know, that's not necessarily the reality for everyone. And we want to be able to provide a safe, comfortable place. Um, that should not look like, uh, should be like a coming to somebody's living room instead of it coming to a doctor's office, you know? Um, and, and I call it boutique therapy <laughs> is because we're really more specialized to, we know who our clients are and we know who our client base is. And, uh, so we are also the other thing, um, we are experienced. I don't, there's nothing wrong with uh, supervision and I'll do supervision, but I don't have that set up within my clinic. They're from like, they may be supervisees from other locations, um, but it's just not what we do. Like a friend of mine opened a clinic uh, a couple of years after I did up the road. They have tons of uh, new therapists provisionally licensed and it's great. They are meeting their need. It's what they do. But my lane is this. And uh, so we know that and we just want to do what we do and do it well. Okay. Well, thank you for uh, explaining that. I, I know when I was going through all of your uh, links and, and websites, 
website pages, I should say, I came across one that was really interesting. And I enjoyed reading about your weight loss journey, and your three reasons yeah. for sharing. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about, you know, I, I like the story here. And, and I liked how you um, gave the three reasons for um, sharing your story. But tell me a little bit more about this. And I'm sure it's probably influenced and been a topic of discussion with some of your clients if they came across this as well. Um, it is. And, you know, I, I already was seeing a lot of uh, bariatric patients um, that were having to do evals and, and helping them prepare. So I was very familiar with the process. Um, but for me, a big motivator is just my health. I have a family health history or a family history uh, of just a lot of health issues that I knew were going to be a problem if I wasn't able to do something about it. And um, so when you research something and fully kind of understand the reasons why, because there are people, unfortunately out there, you know, that, and I deal with clients that have this people deal with people with this mentality. They just say, well, calories in calories out. If you just work out and don't eat as much, then you'll be fine. I'm like, well, I'm so glad you have good genes like that, but that's not the reality for most Americans and uh, you know, and, and people. So um, just helping them to realize that this is more important about their health and being able to be a success and not be held down by that. Because the other thing is there's a lot of mental health issues. There's a lot of psychological aspects that go along with weight. And so for people to, to understand that this is because it's more than just getting your stomach reduced or, you know, having some change in anatomy because that doesn't change your brain. So really helping people catch their brain up, right, to what has happened in their body, um, because they may not start to think like a skinny person um, in, until you do some of the work that goes with that. So, and, and the other thing that comes to mind for me is I know we've probably, this is my, my opinion, my observation, we, we're making strides in overcoming the stigmatism or the stigma associated with you have to have this nice thin body and now we're doing that mm -hmm. in in ads and and bringing uh non-traditional you know types of bodies uh on those ads as well so mm -hmm. i think we're making as a society we're making some strides moving forward but i'm sure there's still a lot of uh clients that come in and not only deal with hey i i'm dealing with this but even after especially with the bariatric or the, uh, I think it's gastric bypass surgery. Is that also fall under there? Uh -huh. yeah. Um, yeah. Dealing, dealing with how you look afterwards, like you just said. And so um, I, I yeah. liked, I liked your story because you, you gave the three reasons to offer hope, to educate and to destigmatize as well. So congratulations on your success. I, I, I'm glad to see that. Uh, Thank it you. Went well for you. Yeah. Um, what do you love most about your job? Just sum it up. What do you love most about your job? Uh, I love that I get to do something that I enjoy and I get to do it as I want to, you know, um, I get to call the shots. Uh, and, you know, I love that I can set out to that there are multiple people that are going to be affected positively. And what I mean by that is, you know, my mission with my clinic is, uh, is really to improve the quality of life for everybody that's associated with it. So yes, myself, my family, but employees, people that work with me, clients, and then all those families that are surrounded. Because if I am enjoying my job and if I am doing and seeing the clients that I know I see best, 
then I'm going to help them the most. And that goes out beyond that. So I, you know, that's really the goal. And if, um, even if that means that I work less, because then I love coming in to see clients because I know I don't have to do it eight hours a day, five days a week, because there is, I don't care who you are. Nobody can sustain that pace. That's too much. And uh, I, I love that I get to to do it as I see is, is necessary. And uh, so. Well, good, good. I mean, you almost that's probably answered, it. Yeah. Yeah. You are. You already answered partially my, my next question. What are your plans and goals for the future? You talked about your mission and some of your goals, any other plans or goals for the future? Um, well, so my husband, we joke that he likes, he has all kinds of ideas and he's a visionary. He would like to see a spa attached to my clinic with also a helipad, a helipad, you know, for the helicopter. And I'm like, dream big. Yeah. Um, no, I, I would love to expand and include other disciplines and, uh, you know, like I want to have a massage therapist, um, and maybe be, have a yoga studio attached, um, I just, I, my mission too is that I think we should take caring for our psychological health as and, and well being as normal and, and as important as checking your cholesterol mm-hmm. um, because it's another facet of our health. And so it's uh, when we see it differently like that, it's a little bit easier for people to actually take action to do something about it and, and be okay with it. And I think that's part of the destigmatizing. Um, but it's not just destigmatizing. It's about just accepting that like sometimes we need other things. And if we're going to go and work out uh, till, you know, till we sweat everything out, but yet we won't take care of our mental health, then you are going to suffer physically. So I, that's, I think that's my mission is to continue to, in, in, in different ways that I might be able to do that, to, to do that in my community. Well, there's the shout out. There's the call out to everybody who's going to be watching or listening yeah. is if you're if you're a massage therapist, or you do yoga, go ahead and reach yes. out to Dr. Long and, and have a discussion. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I have, Absolutely. I have, I have some uh, fun questions here near the end that I ask most of my uh, okay. guests. And, and one of them, the first one is, what is your favorite term, principle or theory? And why? Mm-hmm. Um, well, term, this is, are you ready for this? This is very, a big psychological term. No, that is, <laughs> that is one of my favorites. Uh, it's, it's the idea of boundaries, you know, um, I, I probably there's, there's two that I really like to pull from and in interpersonal therapy where we are a microcosm people recreate a microcosm in therapy of their world so their interactions and so this is how you get a glimpse of what their world is like and so theory wise I guess that drives me in practice and understanding but then uh, I really like rational emotive behavior therapy um, because I it's just it's logical and and understanding the self-defeating behaviors we have and irrational beliefs because uh, you know, if you always expect everybody to behave as you would, you will always be disappointed. But that's how we often operate. And so I yeah, I love I, I love the hardcore nature of Albert Ellis. He's just like, this is just the way it is, you know. Okay, very good answers. What's something new that you learned recently? Uh well, this week, now this is not psychological at all, but you can fix a detached toilet chain with a hair clip. Uh, oh. so 
<laughs> and it works just fine. And it, it saves, it saves the plumber call. Uh, I think, um, the, on a more serious note that if your values influence your priorities, then your time will reflect your values. Mm-hmm. And that, let that be the guide because, um, we all are going to, to maintain, I, I don't think balance is kind of an overused word. I think harmony is more appropriate. We mm-hmm. want harmony in our life in a variety of different areas, but you know, if you say you want, you value your family, but yet you work 75 hours a week, I'm going to say your time doesn't reflect your value, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that there's some things that just, uh, that has even been reiterated to me more through like COVID, uh, and, and this mm-hmm. whole pandemic time. And, uh, um, it's just something I don't take for granted for sure. Well, that's very good advice. While you were talking about that, I'm thinking, well, how much time do I spend doing each of these things that I'm passionate about? So I, I started <laughs> right? to do a self-evaluation right, right there. Um, if you had the time and good. money, if you had the time and money to complete one project or go on one trip, what would you do? Oh, man, I would love to go uh, to multiple countries, uh, it, you know, just through Europe um, and I mean, uh, do maybe, well, maybe not some cruises, maybe a cruise in the Mediterranean, but just, I mean, even through, you know, Denmark and Germany and Italy, I mean, I would just go, I would take like the whole summer and, uh, and just visit those places. So I know that I have some friends that are traveling in Europe right now and they're posting on Facebook and I traveled a couple of years ago, uh, all over the place as well, but they just, I just noticed that uh, many of the EU countries close things down again because of the rise in COVID and, and the Delta, you know, variant I saw uh, that. In, increasing that. So just be aware of that if you're going to try to uh, travel a little bit more. Right. Do you have any other advice for those interested in the field of psychology or opening their own business or practice? Um, I think, uh, well, one of my favorite quotes is no one can, it's Eleanor Roosevelt. No one can make you feel inferior without your consent. And it, it's, you know, you are the keeper of that gate. And we overestimate, I think, all the time, the importance of what other people say um, and do and underestimate the control that we have of ourselves. And I think as you, um, you figure out where you're going and what you're doing, you, you know, you take you take information from other people, but you are not also held to that um, in figuring out your when you're trying to figure out what's right and wrong for you. And I kind of alluded to that earlier. Um, you're going to know what it is that's best for you. And, and it's OK to trust your instincts and just also know that whatever experiences, how awful they may be sometimes are going to be to help you get to a place in your life where you're doing what you need to do. And, uh, you know, don't. Uh, realize that you have much more control of, of those things than, than I guess, other, other people that we sometimes allow. Very good advice. And a, uh, a final reminder of your control, what you can control. And, and um, it's interesting that you, you use that Eleanor uh, Roosevelt quote, because I've heard that plenty of times now, and it's a good, it's a good piece mm-hmm. of advice. Is there anything else that you would like to discuss or bring up on this podcast? Um, 
You know, one thing I think that is helpful for somebody to to think about, because I, I did talk about this earlier when I was trying to decide on a grad program. If if you think if there's any chance that you are going to want to go for a doctorate degree, look at programs that you can get into the doctorate program. And if you decide not to go that route, you can usually terminate with a master's degree. You could you could just do it as a master's to, to complete the requirements. Um, but I would look at programs like that so that you don't set yourself up to having to, you know, I was looking for schools before that I could transfer in my work, but I don't know that as many do that even anymore. And uh, so, you know, if you even think there's an inkling of it, then think of, you know, just maybe set yourself up so that you could go on to do that um, and, and to consider that when you look at programs, I think. Okay, very good advice. So if you're not sure, just look at one that does offer the doctorate degree. And if you wanted to leave early, reach the number of credits required just to get that uh, um, um, master's. Yeah, just that they, and I don't know if every school will do it quite like that, but even if they have a terminal master's and a terminal doctorate uh, mm -hmm. within that program, that will usually be your best bet. Yeah. Okay. Well, I really appreciate your time and willingness to share your thoughts with us today. Uh, I, I learned a couple things from you today as well, and I hope that our audience does um, uh, learn from uh, this podcast. Jenny, thanks again for sharing your story and advice with us. Thank you so much for having me, Brad. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Masters in Psychology podcast. If you want to learn more about our guest or listen to other podcasts, you can visit our website, mastersinpsychology.com, where you can search through all of the schools in the United States that offer advanced degrees in psychology. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, please like, follow, or share.